The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. start of a new one is a perfect time to take stock of the last 12 months, and in this case Cinema Limbo will be looking at the best and worst films of 2018 with assistance from Chris Arnsby. I am Jeremy Phillips, and here we are in his drawing room. Look closer. Hello Chris. Hello. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year to you as well. Well, it's been a, uh, a busy year this year. Uh, there have been an awful lot of very mediocre films <laughs> that I've had to watch. Um, I have some notes here from last year's uh, review of the year. Um, I predicted that Mary Poppins would squash Aquaman at the box office. Did it? Uh, no. No, not much to everyone's <laughs> surprise. <laughs> um, uh, that something about you having a trained parrot. Yes, yeah, yeah that was... On account of the fact that I was just going to... It would save me having to sit here and go, I haven't seen it, I haven't seen it, oh, I haven't yes. seen it, but I haven't, also haven't taken the effort to train a power. So. And uh, also Mission Impossible 7. Don't know what that means. I don't... What <laughs> What are they... Are they on 6 at the moment then? Or? Yes. Okay. I've just kind of lost track. It's just become the latest Mission Impossible film. So, um... My target, as I always try and stick to, is 52 new films, 52 new releases uh, per year. Um, but I've started the Cinema Limbo YouTube channel this mm. year, so a lot of the films I've already seen, I've reviewed on there. Anything that isn't in my top ten or bottom five of the year is going to be on there, okay. apart from a few, which we'll get to, to in a bit. So, um, what have you seen this year? I've seen 16 films, according to my records. Wow. I know, last year I struggled to make 10. Uh, I've really pushed the boat out and gone for the burn and stuff. Well, I think I might need to see your list so that uh, I know which ones to skip past. I have also seen... I have to say I have watched an awful lot of terrible Netflix films, and they may not count. The Oscars certainly don't think so. Uh, Well, uh, Cloverfield Space thing. Mm. Let's start with that. Okay, it was awful. Yes. It was. Oh no, so no, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> um, now, this is the problem, listener, when you're trying to look at three different documents at once on your phone, because I strongly suspect that we'll be talking about the Cloverfield Paradox later on. Hmm. Oh, we are. Um, the Black Panther. I liked it. I saw it virtually at this time last year, so I remember next to nothing about it. Um, it was good. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah. It, was, uh, it wasn't It was amazing. I don't think it set the world on fire. 
No, as I say, it, it, sometimes with a lot of these films, in in the end, the only way to judge them is by how well they sit in your memory. And the Black Panther, I don't really remember. There was a big fight at the end that I quite enjoyed at the time. Um and that's all yeah. as I say there's nothing really leaps out if, I think too much of it felt to me like a retread of Thor it's, yeah. it's trying to make some very astute and laudable points but the, the basic story I thought wasn't sufficiently interesting or engaging yeah I did worry intermittently through the film thinking about it that I sympathised too much with the baddie's point of view because wasn't the baddie basically arguing that the Black Panther's kingdom shouldn't keep all this amazing technology to itself, but it actually should spread it out through the world and isn't, take. Isn't that what the hero's plan was? In the uh, eventually, yes, but he had to be shown the error of his wife. But this is what we were now sitting here trying to remember. For that came out over a year yeah. ago. Um, Avengers: Infinity War. Again, good. I remember slightly more of it than I do of uh, the Black Panther. Uh, I also remember vaguely feeling that Thanos hadn't thought his own personal plan through. Um, it seemed to me that perhaps what he w- what he should be doing is some kind of program of um, sexual education and contraception, rather than just killing off half the population of the universe. Anthony says that it should have won the visual effects Oscar, that the comedy was out of place, and not as radical as it thinks it is, given that David Fincher killed off half the cast in the opening credits of Alien 3. Yeah, I suppose that's true. That was a bit of a shock at the time. I liked uh, Infinity War a great deal. I was very impressed that it managed to juggle all these mm. dozens of characters and story threads in a way that was actually coherent and had me engaged and um, was... pulled a twist ending out of the bag. Oh, that was it. I saw... Um, went to the, Obviously, sitting in the cinema at Avengers Infinity War, didn't really know what to expect. And I was kind of aware that the film had got this epic running time. But it didn't feel particularly long as I was watching it. And every, these days, everybody is aware of the shape of the story. That, you know, you have the opening bit and then it kind of peaks and then you get the lowest point and then you yeah. get the gradual climb back up to the exciting end. So, obviously, there's the moment when Thanos snaps his fingers and half the population of the universe disappears and the film stops. And yeah, I went. Uh, got another 20 minutes to go here, guys. Uh, you're meant to win. But what was funny was I kind of went uh, and did this sort of sh- shrugging gesture. And as I did that, the woman sitting in the row in front of me made exactly the same <laughs> gesture. And yet, surely only one of you should have been able to do that. No. Um, what do we have next on Anthony's list here? Oh, Mamma Mia 2. I didn't see that, but given Anthony's Pierce Brosnan obsession, I can't say I'm surprised he didn't. I just to worry about him. I mean, obviously Pierce Brosnan, good-looking bloke, best James Bond, etc., etc. What? <laughs> um, no. He writes here, This is to England in 2018 what Batman vs Superman was to the US in 2016. The film future historians will use to understand the diseased pathology of the age. Fun watched with teenage girls. Why is he going to the cinema with teenage girls? An Orwellian nightmare after a moment's thought. It's a ghost story the moment Merrill turns up. If young Merrill had been a bloke, no one, have laughed at, no one would have laughed at the promiscuity. Interesting point. Well, neither of us have seen it, so that's a mystery for the ages. Yeah. Though. How about Mortal Engines? That's the Philip Pullman, isn't it? No. Uh, isn't it? No. 
What? <laughs> what am I thinking of then? I don't know. Okay, well, anyway, so th- what's this particular mortal? It's the one about the dystopia where there are the cities rolling around and eating each other. Sounds great. Why didn't I go and see that? It was produced by Peter Jackson. Um, it bombed oh. because it sounded incredibly generic. Anthony's written, Enjoyable by virtue of its fresh world. Flat, talky scenes punctuated by virtual camera swoops around CGI St. Paul's and some boffo effects. Excellent heroine. Nice to see Patrick Malahide. Hugo Weaving. V. Good. Pity it flopped. Hmm. That sounds quite good. That might be one I need to track down now. But no, I... I still have no interest in seeing that. Red Sparrow. Lawrence Committed. Doesn't specify whether it's actress Jennifer Lawrence or director Francis Lawrence. But not believable. Nice to see Charlotte Rampling, but she's not stretched. Weird. I think that's... that's Stretching people. Something we can all agree with there. Nude scene, outrageously exploitative. A bit of a slog. Uh, the commuter with Liam Neeson. Oh, is that the, is that the one with dodgy politics or the? Com- no, that's just oh. him in real life. Oh, well, this is the one where he's on a train, a plane punching people or something. He's on a train and said, and it's oh, you've got to punch this man out of a window or something, or we'll shoot your family. Yeah. Cheap and cheerful, bog standard piffle, but always up for a Neeson pot boiler. Your standards are very low. Farmiga plus a train recalls source code. Okay, yeah, I quite liked Source Code at the time. He also says that uh, Black Panther was a narratively conventional game-changer for black filmmakers. Yeah, I can't argue with that. I've got to switch back to the other email (laughs) with my things written in to see if I actually said anything about Tomb Raider. I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Did you see Tomb Raider? No. Once they didn't cast Chris Bowie in it, I lost all interest. He's written here. A perfectly fine kids' adventure flick with some nice pulpy scenes once the silly bike chase has got out of the way. I thought it was terrible. Okay. Um, it's extremely dour and dull and... It, I missed the over-the-top flair of the two Angelina Jolie films, which I watched at the same time. Mm. And that there's so much energy and lightness and oomph to them. Whereas this, it's just so flat and sedate. And Alicia Vikander is a really terrible actor. It's completely lacking in any kind of charisma. And the idea that she's you know, this incredibly charismatic leading woman is laughable. She's terrible in everything. Is it a, a, is it a yet another origin story? Or yes. Is it? Okay. Because that's obviously what we all wanted was the, the, another Lara Croft origin story. I wouldn't have minded if it had been done with any degree of energy or wit or something other than just green grey mush. Hmm. Hmm. For a long time, it was on my bottom five. Wow. Uh, he's also uh, Anthony's listed a film here that's not released until May, so I'm going to skip that and I'll ask him about it next year. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Um, Solo, a Star Wars story, an exercise in micromanagement that runs counter to the ethos of its hero. Does a dead man crawl to five? But I'm probably all right with Star Wars post eleven. I think he means nine. Yes, I I can't. I couldn't work up any enthusiasm for Solo, and I couldn't really tell you why because if you know go back in time to when I was a nine-year-old 
obsessed Star Wars fan that was desperately collecting all these lumps of plastic that bore a vague resemblance to the characters. Mm. If you'd told me that there would just be a film about Han Solo, I would have been all over it. In fact, they they did a series of books. There was a Luke Skywalker one which nobody cared about, and then there was one called Han Solo at Star's End, which was what Han Solo did when he wasn't uh, when he wasn't off being in Star Wars, mm. and it was. Great, and I thought that was fantastic at the time. But what I don't care about is this thing of, oh, what ma- it's this this constant story theme of what made this person into the character that we know and love. It's like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. What was Han Solo like before he was Han Solo? Well, he wasn't Han Solo. I don't care about that. Um, it's you know. I'm, uh, but then again, I'm, I'm obviously just wait. I'm, I'm still waiting for the um, IG88 Salacious Crumb team up. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a few that uh, I saw that I don't think Anthony did. Uh, Deadpool two. You know, I missed. <laughs> Sorry, this is going to become a. a I should train that power, really, shouldn't I? I missed Deadpool two. Um, but kind of didn't mean to. It was definitely on the list of ones that I thought I should make some sort of effort to go and see. Right. Um, I, I I enjoyed the first one. It it kind of caught me by surprise a bit because I thought it was going to be sort of a bit it was sort of edgy nonsense. Um, and actually, yeah, like the first one. Don't know why I didn't see the second one. Yeah, it's uh, enjoyable. Um, nothing amazingly groundbreaking, mm. but. It it is exactly what it's trying to be. Yeah. Um, ghost stories. Ghost stories. No, it doesn't ring a bell. This was uh, kind of a unique experience for me because it's the only time I've seen a film based on a play with the same actors as the production of the play I saw. Oh, okay. And the other problem is that at the end of the play, the audience was asked not to tell anyone. Oh. What happens in the play? Interesting. To keep, you know, to keep yeah, yeah. the surprises. So, exactly how much I feel I can say is quite limited. Mm. It's uh, written and directed by Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson. Okay, that's A quarter good. of the gentleman and uh, Darren Brown's collaborator. And it harkens back to the uh, horror anthology films that were so successful in the UK in the late 60s and early 70s but it has its own take on it it has its own fresh twist on this concept is it a spoof or is it straight horror it's straight okay Um, the the live production was terrifying wow (laughs) absolutely terrifying and it's hard for a film to replicate that because it's not happening in the same room as you right in front of you but it's a very well-produced, sincere piece of work. Um, Paul Whitehouse come, crops up in a, in a straight dramatic role and is, is extremely good. Hmm. Martin Freeman, I thought, was terrific in another supporting role. Um, and uh, I, I would recommend it very highly. Yeah. It sounds, in terms of it as a stage play, it, it makes me regret the fact that the, the, the scary stage play I went to see last year was The Exorcist. Not very good. <laughs> I've never found The Exorcist scary. It, what was funny about The Exorcist stage play 
was that the first half was all the build-up to the exorcism, and that was really good. It came out at the end at the at the interval, and it was really quite sort of tense, and was quite oh, I can't wait to see. And then the second half, the actual exorcism bit, just let all the air out of the balloon. It was really odd. It was it was entirely the wrong way around. It also starred Peter Bowles as the elderly exorcist, and it wasn't very good. But I did go to see it. It was a rainy February matinee performance and I suspect he stood there and looked out at the half-filled theatre and went I can't, not giving this my full energy Oh, that's not professional <laughs> he's, he's quite an old man now And the other one on my list here that I haven't seen is Hereditary Hereditary Give us a clue It's the horror movie starring uh, Tony Collette. Oh, it's the one that everyone was saying was the new Exorcist. Everyone was absolutely raving about it. Oh, this is the scariest film in decades. Oh, this is amazing. It's a new birth of horror. Mm. And I thought, hmm, people were saying exactly the same thing about the new Blair Witch film, which turned out to be a total disaster. (laughs) So I was sceptical when I went in, and I was sceptical when I left. Okay. Because it's a a well-directed, well-acted completely boilerplate horror movie yeah it's completely boilerplate there is nothing original in there in any way I think I was going to go and I was it got it got quite good reviews and and people seemed very enthusiastic about it and then gradually there was a bit of pushback with people sort of going oh it's not the new exorcist blah 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 and in the end, I just went and read the summary on Wikipedia and spoiled it for myself. It didn't sound very scary when you read the Wikipedia summary. It, it got... I mean, it's, it's well directed. And you've got some really terrific actors doing, you know, completely, absolutely committed work. Mm. But ultimately, it just becomes a bit silly... And yeah. it turns out that there's a there's a demon cult and it's lots of stuff involving beheadings and this is yeah I, I get the impression that people like it because it harkens back to like the seventies horror movies that they like yeah which and is the same with that the director's next film um, Midsummer looks like The Wicker Man in Sweden and nothing okay. more than that 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 people as Americans going to a Midsummer festival in Sweden and it's all Maypoles and fertility rights, and I think, yeah, I've seen this movie. Yeah. It's the fucking Wicker Man. It came out nearly fifty years ago, and you still haven't improved on it. Yeah. Oh well, you know, maybe his next film after that will be about a frightening poltergeist or something. <laughs> a frightening poltergeist. They should call it that. The frightening poltergeist. That's the worst kind of poltergeist. The mean ghost. Uh, Annihilation. Oh, God, I saw that one. Oh, oh, hang on. Now, this is where things get complicated, because I have, as I've said, I've seen a lot, a lot, five, of terrible Netflix films. Is um, is Annihilation the one that stars the sidekick from Ant-Man and the Wasp? No. No. Oh, no, Annihilation is the Forbidden Zone one, isn't it, where they go into... Um... Yeah, it's the one that's um, definitely not a rip-off of Stalker. Yes, that's it. It was, it was all right. I've, I, it's I've, fine. Yeah. It, it's a disappointment after um, Ex Machina, which is Alex Garland's previous film. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten it was by Alex Garland. Yeah. Um, it's, again, let's it, say complaining about, you know, it's, it's like the films that 
that people saw when they were younger. Mm. So while Hereditary feels like a 70s horror movie, this feels like a 70s sci-fi movie. This was very, this was quite sort of Tharg's Future Shocks, in a way. Um, it, it felt, it, made, it really reminded me of, I haven't seen Stalker, but I imagine this mm. is what it's like, and Solaris, the very sort of serious, yeah. slow-paced Russian science fiction films. Um, and I thought, well, this is this is clearly why this was a box office disaster and why Netflix has picked it up yeah. everywhere else because literally no one went to see this because they couldn't sell it. No, no, it's. But there are scenes later on where it's it starts fully committing to how strange mm. it is, where it really works. Yeah, um, the doppelganger sequences towards the end I thought were were really, uh, yes, very unnerving. Yeah, because the, the, this is all where they're travelling towards a lighthouse or something, isn't it? Yes, it's the, the centre of this strange creeping this phenomenon. zone, yeah. Uh, I think that's that's all from my list. I think that might be all from Anthony's. Because mm. these aren't actually in order. Oh, The Old Man and the Gun. More fun than you think it's going to be. The last gasp for Star Wattage getting a film like this into cinemas. Oh, good for... That's Robert Redford, isn't it? Robert Redford in, in apparently his last film. He'll be back. Uh, First Man. This film winning the VFX Oscar is a joke, so nice space porn, but this is three colours blue in space. Armstrong dropping his dead daughter's bangle into a crater was primo bollocks. Yes, I, I do. I went to. I, I'm. As with Anthony, I'm a bit of a space nut. And I went to see this absolutely in sympathy with the, um, with the production and genuinely wanting it to be good. And it didn't win a, It didn't win an Oscar for sound editing then, because the no, the two sound Oscars went to Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay, um, but the, the the one good thing about the, the and this is going to be one of these things. It's like coming. It is like coming out of a musical and raving about the costumes. But the sound editing in First Man is astonishingly good. It makes you realise how frightening space flight is, and. Because it's just constant noise, just bangs and things, and, and people not reacting to noise because they're expecting that. Mm. Um, I went to see it in IMAX, which was occasionally a mistake because about 75% of the film is filmed with that shaky camera, you are there yeah. perspective, which is a bit eye straining when you're trying to watch on the, on a screen that's 18 times the size of a London double decker bus. Um, but when it actually settled down and showed you the space sequences, it was was absolutely magnificent. The uh, yes, the sequence of Neil Armstrong dropping his dead daughter's bangle on the moon is absolute dime store Freud, and it's nonsense. It was. It, it, I mean, uh, it doesn't look like it should have been actually possible. No, it that he wouldn't was carrying be. it in his spacesuit pocket. But it's so. It's just so it's, bog I mean, standard. Really, this, really, this is the. Th- this is the profound moment of yeah. emotional um, conclusion. This incredibly laboured, unrealistic bit of but tripe. The, the problem is that, by all accounts, Neil Armstrong was the very... De- he was a blank slate's blank slate. You know, he was the definition of... So he, which is exactly why he was the guy that you want to come on to the first mission to the moon, because he was Mr. Professional. Um... And so there's this desperate attempt to impose some emotion on the character that just doesn't work. It doesn't feel right. Um, 
This is probably something we're going to come back to with Bohemian Rhapsody. We're not talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, I, I liked Bohemian Rhapsody. What? <laughs> um, but anyway, well, let's slide over that moment. Okay, this is not something we're going to come back to with Bohemian Rhapsody. But Claire Foy, in the part of the wife... <laughs> that, yeah, that's the name of her character. But it is, but it is. There have been, what, three or four now biographical films where there was the wife one. And the wife one goes, God damn it, so-and-so, with your obsession with X, you're tearing this family apart. And Claire Foy has that part in First Man, and it's Neil Armstrong with your obsession with being the first man on the moon, you're tearing this family apart. And she is given a horrible, shrewish, complainy but she 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 actually makes the character work and to to her credit she she the, the character could have been thoroughly dislikable but she I, I was genuinely surprised as we're not going to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody one of the things I found fascinating about that film was that they work that strand into Bohemian Rhapsody they actually give Freddie Mercury a wife who basically says that he's tearing their family apart with his obsession with being gay <laughs> I mean, I said we're not going to talk about it. It's not on my top ten or bottom yeah. five. But I think... I do want to hear why you think that it's not a piece of shit. I went... I wouldn't... It wasn't on my radar to see for ages because um kind of hadn't heard anything good about it going into it. There was the there were all the stories about... Was it Sasha Baron Cohen was up to play Freddie Mercury? Yeah. And he fell out of the film. And apparently Brian May and probably Roger Taylor, had their fingers all over the script. And, and that, and I have no idea if this story is true, that apparently at one point, Brian May sat down with the scriptwriters and tried to persuade them that the story should carry on past Freddie Mercury's death. That was um, apparently the reason why Sasha Baron Cohen wanted to leave, because when he was being handed the script, he said, oh, this, and the script's got an amazing twist halfway through. Really? Interesting. Okay. Read it. The twist halfway through is that Freddie Mercury dies. Mm. And that the rest of the film is about how the band continued after that. Yeah. Nope. The... <laughs> Queen died when Freddie Mercury died. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the I went to see first... If I... Basically, I went to see Bohemian Rhapsody because I'd gone to see First Man. And they had a trailer for Bohemian Rhapsody in IMAX. And it was... Whoever cut the trailer deserves their salary because it was basically the opening shot was the shot of them walking onto stage at Wembley and in IMAX that was just jaw-dropping um so you think okay fine go and see this I like Queen is really what it comes down to you'd sit there and there would be two people on screen going blah 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 feelings emotions something something and yeah this is this is dragging a bit can we have a song and then a snatch of Radio Gaga would come on you go okay fine and that would carry you through the next bit but they I know it's it's dishonest it distorts facts it's um, it's a gross distortion of facts it's it's a genuinely terrible script Oh yeah, that yeah. forces events to conform to a three-act structure, mm. and any relationship between the script and Mercury's actual life is largely yeah. coincidence. Um, I thought that Rami Malek's performance was quite good, but it's mostly an impersonation, and he doesn't sing. 
No, he doesn't, does he? I, let's, he should not have that Oscar because he does not sing at any point in the film. I was listening to an interview with uh, listening to an interview with him where they talked about the, the way that they kind of he would start singing and they blended his voice, and it sounds like it was quite cleverly done. But uh, yeah, well, the sound editing Oscar, but it also but it won the the film editing Oscar, and that, yeah, I've that's, seen a lot of people that scene of, of the the pub mm. terrace where it's got a, a cut every six every two seconds. And it looks like it's gone through a fucking Moulinex. Yeah. Oh, that was the uh, the one thing that did stick out to me. And uh, I, th- I think what I'm inching towards saying is that this was kind of my mamma mia. You know, if you go into this film in sympathy with it, it's great. If you go into it not or not being particularly interested in Queen, you won't care. Obviously, you've got Mike Myers as the evil record producer. And they ditch him. And then it cuts back in the middle of the... Uh, in the middle of the live aid, live aid concert. it cuts back to him kind of going hmm, and pulling a face, and that really stood out to me as being an incredibly misjudged moment, because at that point this guy is history. You know, effectively all you're doing is reminding the audience that this guy existed at one point. Yeah, and it, I always get a bit. I'm assuming that. Well, this is this is the script for Bohemian Rhapsody we're talking about, so maybe this isn't based on a real person. I'm always a bit wary with stuff like that of mean-spirited digs at people that are potentially real. The one that always genuinely offended me and was one of the reasons why I came out of Titanic Furious was there's a sequence towards the end of the film where there's a member of the ship's crew who's trying to stop people getting on a lifeboat yeah. and he shoots some, and then he kind of he does something terrible and then he puts a uh he puts the gun under his chin and he kills himself and that's somebody's yeah that was relative. a real person that's a real person and, and that, his, i remember his family being extremely angry and upset yeah and because that, that didn't happen and no exactly and that but that is now sadly that's how that guy because there will be people that will go oh titanic it's based on it's apparently it's based on a true story but and they will just as take that to mean that everything in the film is true and yeah to do that with the reputation of somebody seems like a particularly low trick the character Mike Myers plays in Bohemian Rhapsody is not a real person it's okay. kind of a mal- it's an amalgamation of a number of different people it's an amalgamation they've had to deal with but it's he, he the ca- the character as named was not a real yeah. person um, but so just, it's not uh, it's that's fine, I think. And I can if you're un- telling that story, I but... can understand it as the setup to, and fine, it, and it got a laugh in the cinema, uh, but it just didn't seem to me to work as a as a joke. That, that you don't, the band has had its multiple moments of triumph for that, but you don't need a cut back to take that Mike Myers amalgamation of people that may or may not have existed. Yeah, yeah, in, you, you just, it, it, it's one of the few points in the film that did strike me as being unnecessary. Um, there are plans, apparently, um, for, a sequel. for a sequel, which I hope was going to be based around the recording of John Deacon's song for the Biggles Adventures in Time soundtrack. Yeah, well, they could. There's a, there's a lot of material they could cover. That they could cover Sun City. There's all kinds of interesting stuff that they. Yeah, all, all, all the stuff that they glossed over. All the stuff about Freddie being gay. Is it? Am I right? Because this is one of these facts that I I came across and, and it 
surprised me, but I did never actually bother to check it to see whether it's right. That the guy that plays John Deacon is the kid from Jurassic Park. Yep. All grown up. Yep. It's a terrific performance. Actually, John, because yeah. De- John Deacon is a real, uh, it's a real nothing role. And I'm sorry, John, if you're listening to this, but you're the man that turned up on top of the pops in a cardigan. Uh, everybody else was doing the best. Freddie Mercury obviously looked fabulous as he always does Brian May had had his hair done the drummer was doing whatever he's done and John Deacon's in a grey cardigan well it's it's bass players isn't it it's like John Entwistle in the uh, in the Who who was known as the Ox because he would just stand there just and play that, the yeah. guitar and then he'd go back to his hotel room but to, to his credit John Deacon has turned out to be the most sensible member of Quay because, because he just walked away exactly yeah yeah he, more power to him he picks up the money doesn't do any publicity just had a nice, quiet life as a millionaire. Yeah. Fine, he's earned it. Um, Aquaman. Didn't see it, um, partly just because the reaction to, obviously, the ongoing Shit. DC cinema car crash. Yeah. Although Wonder Woman was quite good, was good fun. Um, well, they should have more films directed by women. Well, yeah, possibly. Um, Anthony says, A Saturday morning kids cartoon that is its own porn parody. <laughs> borderline unendurable romping success is a damning indictment of modernity another key Trump era film along with Batman vs Superman okay I, I don't have anything to add I mean I, I, I remember watching the um, trailers in kind of fascinated horror because there's literally just rank after rank of lovingly CGI'd citizens of Atlantis riding on seahorses or something and just looking at the yeah but, that, but not like those like girly no, uh, because these are seahorses. Yeah. These are like proper, yeah. like butch, manly seahorses. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, and they're yeah. all pregnant. They've all got tattoos and they've got bitching new attitudes. And, and they're all going, oh, yeah, like, yes. like the Kool Aid man. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Anthony's seen a film called London Fields, which hasn't been released in the UK. Oh, so, good for him. But uh, he hated it. Um, King of Thieves, which I think is the Michael Caine Hatton Garden heist film. Oh, yes, yeah. Never quite catches fire, watch a documentary instead. That's it. Not going to argue with that. And I think we're alone now. I'm going to assume that's... Again, haven't heard of it, haven't seen it. It's um, it's a post-apocalypse film. Peter Dinklage is living on his own. Oh, and, I remember seeing um, the trailers. someone else turns up, played by Al Fanning. I remember seeing posters for that. And yeah, sort of vaguely looking at it and thinking Peter Dinklage's career can't catch a break. But maybe it's, it's he's good. He's the lead. Yeah, but is the film any... Hope Dinklage gets to do more of this stuff rather than X-Men et al. I'm biased in favour of John Wyndham-esque deserted towns, so this went mm. down well, particularly the minutiae of survival. Fair enough. Now let's have a look at the rest of your list. The list of shame, okay. Just to see... Well, we obviously we still have to discuss Cloverfield Space thing. No, we don't. Uh, it was rubbish. How it ends. Now, I have a weak spot for kind of post-apocalyptic disaster porn um, I I'm almost embarrassed by the number of times I've watched 2012 it's it's a terrible film but it's one of these ones that keeps cropping up on like ITV4 or something mm. and I would just watch it every single time it's on um, and how it ends obviously it's a Netflix film it must have had a thumbnail that um Made it look interesting. Made it look It's just boring more than it anything. It really is. It's 
it's Forrest Whitaker and some guy driving through the Midwest as the apocalypse happens. Yeah. And then periodically they run into someone and then they need help. And then they get their car nicked and then they get their car back and then they drive off again. Yeah. And they meet up with some people and they need help. And then they get their car nicked. And this goes on for about 90 minutes. Yeah. And then it does. And then Forrest Whitaker gets shot. Oh, he does, then, doesn't he? And then the guy drives off with Forrest Whitaker's daughter, who's his fiancée. And then there's a big black cloud in the distance and then the film stops. Yes. It's... And, it's, and it's, this isn't a movie. This isn't anything. This is just half a script. Yeah. No, I was. I remember being particularly unimpressed by, ironically, by how it ends. Um, but as you say, they they kind of go to wrecked Vancouver, possibly <laughs> Seattle. I, don't know. I think it's Seattle, but it was probably filmed in Vancouver. And then they then he finds that yes, he finds the daughter living in a forest in a nice house. And then there's another bit where oh, the man that the daughter's living with is secretly crazy. Blah blah blah. You know, nothing that you haven't seen. Before and then, as you say, and then and then there's a big volcano and they drive away from it, and the film just I've said it before, but the, basically the film might at that point have just gone insert more money because it just <laughs> stops. Uh, yeah, boring. Um, Mission Impossible Fallout. I thought it was good. I liked it. I kind of cannot. They've all blurred into a mush in my memory these days. Um, this is obviously not the one where Tom Cruise climbs the tallest building in the world. This is the one where they're running around after a nuclear bomb and they have a fight on the cliff in the Himalayas, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I This was actually the very first first take I did and right. I was not hugely impressed because it just felt like action, 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 action. No wit or mm. depth to it. Just like, what crazy stunts can we do now? Yeah. And because of that, I found it very unengaging and uninvolving. And a few jarring notes as well with the uh, what what did pass for humour was usually sort of Tom that somebody would say, "Do you know what you're doing?" And Tom would go, "I know what I'm doing." Then and then he then he would sort of have a doubtful look on his face or something like that. Mm. And I thought that thing of suddenly having this character have doubts about himself or admit that he didn't know what he was doing it just didn't feel it didn't ring true because no. this guy is we've established at this point that, that Tom Cruise's character is just a sort of it's just a machine it doesn't matter what you throw at him he will make a decision and it will prove to be the right decision and everything will end well there's a sequence in Rogue Nation where he's nearly drowns and he revives and then he immediately has to get into a car chase and they get some comic mileage out of him still being a bit groggy and like trying to slide over the 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 bonnet of the car and then falling face oh. first onto the ground and and just yeah and and then Simon Pegg pulls the face he won't yes and it's like it's just undermining it slightly yeah. it's just having a little bit of fun at this I thought Rogue Nation was absolutely absolutely terrific I'm not even sure I remember Rogue Nation I've I've it's the I've, previous one with. Um, Beardy, whispery guy. What's his name? I've forgotten the villain. I don't, the I don't, one who talks like this. I thought that was the bad guy from Spectre. No, that's Christoph Waltz. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is the villain from Spectre because Rogue Nation is basically Spectre, but better. Anthony says, Macquarie is God but delivers a strangely affectless experience. Cavill, excellent. He was excellent. Oh, that's right. This was the film that starred Henry Cavill's moustache, wasn't it? Yeah, where he reloads his fists. Yeah. Uh, enough with the peg. Still looking forward to the forthcoming two-parter. They're, they're filming the next two back-to-back. Whether or not it's a two-parter, I don't know. 
Uh, Ant Man versus the Wasp. No, I'm not Ant Man. No, Ant Man and the Wasp. I got confused. Good fun. Lots of shenanigans with things that are big suddenly being tiny and things that should be tiny suddenly being big. Um, I like that's what happened. <laughs> I liked all the stuff at the end with the office block. Um, yeah, it's it's it, just it's good fun. It's two hours of Marvel movie. The problem I had with it in a way was that obviously I saw it after seeing Avengers Endgame. And that's a film that ends with the destruction of half the population of the universe. Infinity War. Oh, whichever. No, Endgame's the new one, isn't Endgame's it? Endgame's the new one. Yeah. Infinity War's the one just gone. Um, and it's, I thought going into it that it might be a mistake to follow up the death of 50% of the universe with a quirky little comedy. But actually, you kind of don't, don't think about that. Um, Bird Box. Oh Lord, yeah. I end, I only ended up watching this one because everybody was talking about Bird yeah. Box. What was kind of funny was I heard somebody talking about Bird Box, where it literally was that it was Christmas. It was on Netflix. It had Sandra Bullock in. Their mum likes Sandra Bullock, yeah. and so it's fine. Let's watch Bird Box over Christmas. That's virtually what happened to me. Oh. Uh, and it was just a thing going, so apparently everybody's mum likes Sandra Bullock. Um, it's just, it's boring. Um, and the Red Letter Media guys did a much better job of taking it apart than I could ever hope to do. But but as they pointed out, you know, it, it basically, it's a film that tells its story in the wrong order. You know, you've got... The first shots of them going down the river towards this thing. And then it does the five years earlier or whatever the hell the flashback is. And then suddenly everybody's driving around and, oh no, there's insanity monsters. And if you look at the insanity monsters, you're going to go mad. And then, But then it's ringing mileage out of, will Sandra Bullock survive? It's like, well, of course she will. And the bloke obviously isn't going to survive because he's not in the boat and the kids are there. And I just want to know how yeah how long is it going to be before somebody names their kids boy and girl exactly i was very unimpressed mm. um and one i haven't seen finally a quiet place i thought it was boring <laughs> i'm kind, i kind of felt a bit guilty about it uh, this because a lot of a quiet place is one of these films that has had quite good um quite a good reception it just didn't work for you. You you spend ages in the film watching stuff happening that would be tedious if it was. Yeah, there's a whole sequence where they play Monopoly or something like that, and obviously they're using special dice that don't make any noise, um, and nobody's talking, and it's it's just it's a very very dull film. Um, the monsters are woefully inconsistent. I think it is the classic problem that, that you sit there and you go, well, how come the monster heard that, but the monster didn't hear that? And it just doesn't... It didn't, didn't do anything for me. Uh, well, actually, there's still a couple more. Uh, Extinction? Now, this might be the one I'm thinking of. Yes. That's got the... It's with the alien invasion yeah, and thing, then it's, the man having dreams of alien invasions. Yeah. And then it turns out there's a big twist which doesn't make any sense at all. There's um, Thark's Future Jocks in 2008 used to have a. You realised after a while that they always broke down to a pattern. It would be 
for some reason they were obsessed with stories where aliens landed and it turned out that the aliens were tiny and the spaceship got trodden on. They ran that story about three or four times in 2008. And there would be other kind of twists. Where, and one of the ones that they liked to do was the twist was, oh, it's mankind is the monster after all. And of course you get to the end of Extinction and it's like, oh, mankind is the alien invader. Uh, whatever. Um, and it turns out they're all robots. Um, and they've all reprogrammed themselves to stop to stop thinking about the fact that the that they threw out the human overlords or something. Yeah. And then they all get on a train and drive away at the end. So it's what if what if in the Matrix the robots had locked themselves in the Matrix and all the people wandering around outside. I suppose, yeah, in a way it is. But without any of the action or style or entertainment. Hmm. Anthony saw the Meg. Oh, the big shark film, yeah. Toothless. Statham was right when he said there should have been more gore. Jaws for tots. <laughs> um, he also saw Venom. Trashy when it needed to be punky. Hardy delivers manneristics and not a performance. I preferred him in Star Trek Nemesis. Venom is not a great film, mm. but I really enjoyed Tom Hardy in it. I thought he really threw himself into the the, the kind of over-the-top Jekyll and Hyde element of the performance. What, what rating is it? I think it's probably a 12A. It's a superhero. You see, that's the problem. It's a bit like Deadpool. I always got the impression it needed a bit more uh, a bit more bite to it. And and But then the moment you kind of file off all the sharp edges to make it a 12A, it kind of doesn't seem to have any real point to Venom it. Venom does eat people. We just don't see him we don't see them going, going in. <laughs> Mentioned Aquaman. I think that's it. So, right. After a mere checks watch. 45 minutes. Wow, that was 2018. <laughs> uh, no, now it's time for the top 10. Oh, I see. Okay. Now it's time for me. At number 10, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is the, all the different. This is Miles Morales, isn't it? It's. The various Spider-Man avatars from different dimensions dragged through to a, a single dimension where Spider-Man is dead and Miles Morales has been bitten by a different radioactive yes. spider. <laughs> and it's terrific. Mm. It's absolutely gorgeous. The animation style is... It's more exciting and more interesting to look at than any animated film I've seen for a very, very long time. Okay. Um, it's ta- it's taking its cue from comic books, but it's making it more vibrant, more mm. energetic. There's there's constant motion, there's constant activity, but it doesn't feel frenzied. It it knows when to calm the um, calm the tone for mm. the, the more emotional elements. And I thought it was absolutely terrific. The fact that it manages to blend together the, all the different visual styles of the different Spider-Man characters. You've got Miles Morales, who's a regular kid. You've got Spider-Man Noir, who oh, is yes. entirely in black and white and talks like a private eye. You've got Spider-Ham, who's a pig. Oh, God, they... Who is a cartoon character. They dragged him out. Who hits they? people with anvils. Um... And, and it all manages to mesh together mm. into all these different styles. It, meshes together into a coherent whole which is really cleverly written a totally fresh take on Spider-Man and is well aware 
that the audience... That it's a running joke that the audience knows exactly what Spider-Man's origin story is. Like, mm. let, let me go through this one more time is a recurring line where each successive Spider-Man tells their origin story, and it's always a variation on the same thing. What was, what was Spider-Ham bitten by? Uh, he was bitten by a radioactive pig. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Because he's a spider who was bitten by a pig, but he looks like a pig. Oh, hang on. So, oh. Yeah. Now I'm all confused. Yeah, it's the other, because it's backwards. Yes. And he's called Peter Porker. Yes, I know. <laughs> and he's played by John Mulaney, who's terrific. And Nicolas Cage as Spider-Man Noir is oh, giving it his full Nicolas Cage. And where he's like presented with a Rubik's Cube and he's just can't comprehend all the colours. Hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's an absolutely terrific film. I loved it. Yeah. Um, it, there's so much joy and so much awareness of the possibilities. And it comes up with a different moral than all the other Spider-Man movies have managed as well, which I okay. really like. Something that would only be possible in a film where you have multiple Spider-Men running around. Um, I thought it was absolutely terrific. Yeah. Um, Anthony says an out of nowhere delight it's certainly the best something but not sure what <laughs> I recommend it yeah. unreservedly I thought it was absolutely terrific fun um, now into the bottom five it's so hard to choose because there are so, <laughs> so many worthy candidates there's some real crap on this list I might have to do these in alphabetical order actually it's as good a order as any so that would mean that at number five is the fifteen seventeen to Paris. Oh, this is the one that's got the real people in it. It's the, the story of the uh, twenty fifteen uh, Paris train attack, mm. with the actual people who foiled it playing themselves, and it's a biography of all of them from when they were at school, how they met, when they joined the army, when they were in the army, when they were on holiday in Europe having a, a, a travelogue of them going to Amsterdam and then to Berlin. And then about 20 minutes from the end, we get yeah. to the actual terrorist attack. And I cannot believe Clint Eastwood thinks that this is a, this is a movie because a lot of the time you're just following around non-actors mm. pretending to have a holiday that they've had before. It's 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 so but there's no structure to it at all. It seems like such an odd choice because he's a good, solid, sensible director. He's, and I, he's he knows how to tell a story in a concise, clear fashion, but there's nothing here to grab onto. Yeah, and I'm I'm just at a loss as to why why he thought this was was a viable project. I can understand, I suppose, that because the story itself of the actual stopping of the, the train attack is phenomenal, but that's, what, five minutes? Well, 20 minutes, by the sounds of it. Or is yes. there ten minutes of everyone going, well done, now go and look at the Eiffel Tower? There is a, there, I mean, there is a bit of flag-waving with, you know, how... Yeah. And you know, one of the other people who helped foil the attack, who I who was, I think, British, right. and a civilian, is barely mentioned. Mm. So it's very much a look at, you know, look at our brave boys, aren't they brave? Yes. Isn't the military great? Which really, that always gets me. Um, I've recorded a podcast, which listener you'll probably be listening to fairly soon, hopefully, about, about a film involving military life. And I do go off on one about how <laughs> I absolutely despise the military mindset and the worship of the military. But I look forward to it. But this, this film really felt like 
we don't even need to make any effort yeah. because these people are heroes and we've said so and why would you even doubt that um, it has Vernon Dobchev in it very briefly which made me laugh because um, I thought he died about 20 years ago <laughs> and um, it's got some odd casting actually it has some comedian or comedy actors playing small roles earlier on Judy Greer and Jenna Fisher what, turn up. What is the acting of the, the leads like? Is it acceptable? Well, they're playing themselves, yeah. so it's not like they have to try too hard. But it's fine, but yeah. they, I mean, they don't have to do very much. The thing that I found most interesting is that the only reason that they succeeded in stopping this guy is that his gun jammed. Oh, okay. One of them just like ran straight at him. Yeah. And the the terrorist race is going to fire, but the gun jammed. I thought, well, if the gun hadn't jammed, he would have just looked like a right nana running towards a gun yeah. and then getting his brains blown out all over the inside of the train. I mean, it doesn't say much that they foil this guy through blind luck and stupidity rather than any kind of skill or strategy. Hmm. That's yeah. His gun jammed, they rattled him to the ground and then beat the crap out of him until he stopped moving, which under the circumstances is justified. Oh, yeah. But it only happened through sheer blind luck and stupidity. Hmm. So yeah, take that. <laughs> Number nine on the good list, and this is one that no one I know has seen, a futile and stupid gesture. Okay, no. Don't even It's the story of the foundation of National Lampoon. Oh, okay, I'm thinking of a different... Yeah. And as an indicator of how little research I've done and background reading, I can't remember the lead character's name. Okay, Ian Lampoon. <laughs> um, played by Will Forte. It's look, kind of looking at the foundation of the current wave of alternative comedy in the US. Hmm. National Lampoon was originally the Harvard Lampoon developed into a national newspaper that in turn spun off into a radio show, into a stage show, and then uh, attracted sufficient attention that TV executives wanted in on it, and that led to the foundation of Saturday Night Live. Hmm. So it's generations of comedy have come up through this this story. He says, trying to look it up on his phone. Yes. Where does the title come from? It's the title, I believe, of his autobiography. Oh, okay. I'm probably just going to... Doug Kenny, that's his name. Doug Kenny, okay. Um, it's not his autobiography. It's the. Um, it's, it's just his normal biography. Is that right? Yes. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting story because Kenny was kicking against authority, kicking against any kind of structure mm. his whole career. And he was an absolute nightmare to work with. Oh, okay. Um, the idea of the National Lampoon wound up being, I think, published by a company that specialised in like knitting magazines or something like that. So because no one else would give them yeah. money, no one else would give them that level of control. But then it became a huge bestseller. Yeah. Um, they did the famous cover where the the cover photo was a picture of a dog with a gun to its head. Oh, that's said, right. Buy, buy this, buy this, ma- buy this yeah. magazine, or we'll kill this dog. Yeah, it's because it's because the the, the, the National Lampoon is obviously the magazine that never made it across the Atlantic to the UK, so far as I know. So I'd always been aware of MAD, but National Lampoon was just 
National Lampoon's Vacation and National Lampoon's European Vacation. And that, I think, was it. That, that was the brand that it ultimately became because it started with Animal House, which Kenny mm. co-wrote. And that became, I think at the time, the highest grossing comedy ever released. Because National Lampoon was just, it was this giant cultural steamroller. Yeah. Everything they did was a massive success. And obviously in the 70s, massive success means massive amounts of cocaine, which combined with pre-existing mental health issues uh, explains why Doug Kenny wound up killing himself. Oh, okay. It's the, it's the jury's out. Um, he was involved with the making of Caddyshack, and then Caddyshack came out, and the reviews weren't great. And then he decided to go on a, a short holiday in Hawaii, and while he was there, he fell over a cliff. That... And whether or not it was an accident or suicide has never been established. That was it, because I recognise the name, and I listened to uh, Gilbert Gottfried does a podcast, and I think he did some work with the National Lampoon. And the context of this, they, they were talking about Doug Kenny, and, and the comment that got made was that he was the kind of person that probably fell off the cliff looking for a good place to commit suicide. <laughs> but um, it's, it's an interesting film. It's weird seeing so many like, famous comedians and comedy actors you grew up with played by other actors. So you have mm. Joel McHale playing Chevy Chase. Okay. When they used to actually work together in real life. Yeah. Um, and Martin Mull narrates it as the present day Doug Kenny. Hence the twist that he's actually dead. Right. So, well, yeah, because cause you're watching a movie, remember, so it doesn't matter. Yes, yeah. And it ends with um, a sort of a memorial service where the, the actors are sort of in character but also not celebrating the, the legacy of Kenny's work and this giant empire of comedy mm. that has sprung up in the last 50 years, which is largely down to his... Yeah. drive in, in getting this off the ground in the first place so it's I mean I watched the film a year ago yeah. and I haven't done much research on it but it's it's held its place on my chart since then I really enjoyed it I found it a really interesting story how did you happen to catch it? it was something I've had an eye on for a while because mm. I, I keep an eye on the list of what's coming up on Netflix and I saw a film about the family oh, on, is it too. still on though? Or? I believe so. yeah it's a Netflix movie okay well, that, that's going on the list um, and oh, Will Forte because I watched Last Man on Earth, his sitcom, mm. which I thought was superb. So I knew that he was a good actor who could sort of balance weird comedy with sincere drama. And it works very well here. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's a very fine movie. I recommend it. Number eight. The Favourite. Oh, this is um, Olivia Colman, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Oscar-winning Dame Olivia Colman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was terrific. Um it was nasty in exactly the right way because Yorgos Lanthimos' previous films have this undercurrent of something really horrible is going to happen. Yeah. Like The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer and, um, oh, what's the one with the family being held prisoner? I forgot the name of it. Mm, I don't know. I've certainly seen... Dogtooth. Dogtooth. Oh, Dogtooth, okay. Um... That you know, there's, and there's this strange situation, and sooner or later, something really terrible is going to happen. Yeah. Well, certainly, I I I saw the killing of Sacred Deer. Um, I thought I got confused about release dates and was 
it was originally on my list of films that I'd seen within your current cinematic year, but I can only assume it was actually hanging around at the cinema for longer than I thought. Um, that was a deeply odd film. <laughs> uh, it's completely vindicated, I think, my opinion on Colin Farrell, hmm. which is that, a bit like Sylvester Stallone, he's a great actor trapped in the body of a leading man. <laughs> yeah. Um, because he's absolutely terrific in those films. And in The Favourite, you have Emma Stone uh, deliver, I think, the performance of her career, where she's sort of finally separated away from being this A-list movie star yeah. and being this horrible, conniving, selfish, self-centred creature who meets her match in Rachel Weisz, who is exactly the same... Is this um, is this this is the film that gets a bit raunchy in places, isn't it? I believe it's it's about a lesbian love triangle. Yeah, that's the one. I, my parents were talking about whether they should go and see it at the cinema, and I, I don't don't think they did. There's 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 a small amount of nudity. There's okay. nothing nothing that's going to shock the horses. I wouldn't say so. Um, Olivia Coleman has been very happy to go on chat shows and talk about the scene where they had to film her being fingered by Emma Stone <laughs> because um, she was a bit concerned about where the hand was going to go mm. so I thought well I'll, I'll put a sponge down there so that you know it's, it'll be you know there'll be a barrier so they got around to filming the scene and Emma Stone's hand goes up Olivia Colman's dress and I c- obviously this is radio so I, it's, it's not going to come across but the face Olivia Colman pulls uh, impersonating Emma Stone's I thought was terrific of this baffled horror <laughs> at what she found under there yeah um, but it's a film about this enclosed world that's that's the other thing that Lanthimos loves with Dogtooth being mm. about a family held captive in, inside this compound the lobster is about this hotel that you can't leave um, where the royal court is this sealed environment um and it's filmed with these fisheye lenses that completely oh, okay. encapsulate the entire room. So there, is, there are no corners to hide in. Yeah. Um, and the, the sense of this uh, suffocating environment where uh, Stone's character is trying to d- dig her way out of nothing from uh, having been, sort of, I think, cut off from her family, I think it is, like, hmm. and work her way up from the scullery. Um, it reminded me a little of Gormenghast. Okay, yeah, yeah, makes and sense. It, and it has that sense of the grotesquerie of uh, almost medieval pageantry. Was this one of the deserving Oscar winners, do you think? Well, I have my list of uh, nominees down here, my preferred nominees, and I would have given Best Supporting Actress to Emma Stone. Okay. Uh, and Rachel Weisz certainly deserved her nomination, as did Olivia Colman. And... Um, I also, I think, I named it as Best Original Screenplay of the Year as well, um, by a first-time writer. Pretty good. Um, so it's a really terrific film. It's dark and it's nasty and gruesome, and I thought it was absolutely terrific. And for the next film in the bottom five, I think we're going to have to go to your favourite, the Cloverfield Space movie. Oi. Um... Yeah, here's the lousy remake of of um, Event, Horizon. Event Horizon that nobody wanted. Yeah, um, I don't think I've been so disappointed in a film 
for a while because it just kind of goes just goes on and stuff happens and it goes on and then something else happens and it's like the complaints about horror films where you want to know what the rules are and there are apparently no rules there's there's a bit with an arm and then there's all things appearing inside people and then and then and it actually has i think possibly the stupidest ending i have seen in a film where the escape capsule disappears into a cloud bank and then the cloverfield monster pops its head up through the clouds and goes raw and you just kind of go and that's that's it is it uh, and that's the and I assume that's also the tie into Cloverfield. Yeah. Yeah. It's just no. It's just it's rubbish. And was this the first? This was the one that got announced in quite a stylish way, wasn't it? Did they, did Netflix put up a Super Bowl commercial or something where they said, and after the game's over, why not watch this? Yeah, that Never. was that was the first trailer for it. Yeah. During the Super Bowl and said release date in two hours. Yeah. Which is brilliant I mean, can't fault them for their marketing on it and everybody went off and watched it and everyone just kind of shrugged it's a complete mess as you say yeah. it has no sense of structure it has no sense of the rules uh, Roy from the IT crowd's arm comes off and he goes Whoa, wow look at that rather than going oh my yeah. god <laughs> why is it crawling around on its own Jesus Christ yeah and then there's a duplicate earth or the same like, I, I don't care it's yeah, it was just a total mess. Yeah, it was a lousy science fiction film even before they started reshooting chunks of it to try to make it fit the Cloverfield stuff. And there's that whole subplot of someone's husband driving around on Earth. And I think I think that's the reshot stuff to make it Cloverfield because he's going, isn't he going driving around going, oh, there's a monster. And over. it's totally disconnected from anything else. It's yeah. it's it's barely it barely functions as a movie. It's a real shambles. Yeah, and it's a shame because I've got a a genuine... Again, the kind of disaster porn stuff. I've got a real soft spot for the first film with all the sort of devastated yeah. New York sequences. Um, got, uh, I think the second film is terrific, um, Cloverfield Lane. Mm. Um, I even like the bit at the end with the aliens that everyone else thinks yeah, that, is rubbish. that I did <laughs> And then this one, and you just go... Uh, Fine. If they're going to do another one, maybe the ne- the next one will be better. Yeah, but that, that where's how's that one going to go? Because that's not going to go straight to Netflix. That's going to go straight to mm. like, Marie Curie Foundation or something. Do it straight to Blockbuster. Yeah, who knows at this point? So let's do another good one. And at number seven, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Hmm. This is another Netflix one, isn't it? Yeah. And this, I don't think I've seen enough. Coen Brothers films and by enough I mean more than about two <laughs> but Am again I surprised? I can't it's it's one of these classic things I can't explain why I've got a bit of a blind spot for them I think I've seen The Hudsucker Proxy and Raising Arizona um, right that's two of their weakest films that might there you go in that case that might maybe why I haven't uh, seen any more um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is an anthology of western stories mm. Two of them are adapted from existing material and the others are by the Coens themselves. And it creates a full world right. of struggle and cruelty and dismal lives. But it's it was just so engaging. They're, they're, they're like perfect pencil sketches. You get an absolute sense of who these characters are, what their situations are. 
And each one feels distinct, even though it feels like a complete work. The plan, I think, originally was to actually release it as a six-part series. Okay. But it works so much better as a film because you get a, a completely rounded world view. The first story is about Buster Scruggs himself, the skin gun fighter, who's like a cartoon character hmm. made flesh. Um, trying to remember what all the stories are now. Isn't one of them quite bleak or so? I a lot of them are quite oh, bleak. Right. Um, one's about a uh, travelling impresario with his act, who is a limbless actor who recites poetry and speeches and okay. dramatic works. And it's done with almost no dialogue apart from some functional speech with Liam Neeson as the impresario. And it is very dark and very grim. Wow. And the title of it is Meal Ticket. <laughs> and it's, it's fantastically dark. And on the other hand, you have um, the story of a prospector played, I think, by Tom Waits. I think this is the one that people have said is particularly bleak or... Was this an well, end? I actually thought it was tremendously upbeat. Oh, okay. Um, about a, a prospector looking for a gold seam in a valley. Um, and again, just the story of him and his struggle against Mr. Pocket, as he terms it. He's always talking to Mr. Pocket, this, this gold seam he's convinced is somewhere in this valley. And it's based on a Jack London story. Oh, Um we have uh, the story that Anthony singles out, The Gal Who Got Rattled, as, which he names the best short film of the year, about a young woman who's part of a wagon train. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail because mm. it spoils it, but it's, it's, again, it's a perfect pencil sketch of the harshness of life, but still with that acid, deadpan humour that the Coens do so well. And the final story, and I know I've missed one out, uh, the final story is about a group of people travelling by stagecoach, but it is gently suggested that it is, may not be any conventional stagecoach, and their destination may not be within this world. Okay. So, not not the kind of thing that you... Not, not an impossibly bleak film that you just come away from feeling terrible, then. Actually... It has so much wit and colour no. to it. If it had ended with Meal Ticket, that would have been a problem. But it ends with this this story of maybe journeying into mm. the afterlife, like uh, like Charon's ferry has been updated to be a stagecoach. Yeah. Um, there is a a charm to all of the Coen's movies. I think even their bleakest film is No Country for Old Men. Even that has enough to keep you from thinking about all the darkness and horror of what happens mm. in this world there's still enough humanity there there's still enough light and it's the same with this because I mean the first story with the singing gunfighter is incredibly yeah, sounds, and incredibly fun yeah. um, and I had one of the songs was Oscar nominated there's a bit where he walks out of uh, the desert into a saloon and pats off his clothes and then walks off and leaves a perfect outline of himself in dust like Daffy Duck hmm. um but um, I thought it was I thought it was wonderful. Um, I love the Coen Brothers' work, and this is up there with some of their very finest. Uh, it's I think down on my list for some nominations. Uh, yeah, best director. 
Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is down for Best Director as well. I'll run through all of them. Hmm. Um, so Best Director, those two. Panos Cosmatos for Mandy. Spike Lee for Black Klansman. Okay. And Orson Welles for The Other Side of the Wind. Best Actor is Will Forte for A Few Times Stupid Gesture. Tom Hardy for Venom. John Huston for The Other Side of the Wind. Rami Malek and John David Washington for Black Klansman. Okay. Best Actress, Emily Blunt for Mary Poppins Returns. Olivia Colman for The Favourite, Lady Gaga for A Star Is Born, Jamie Lee Curtis for Halloween, and Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me, which she won, Okay, I, uh, I decided. Best Supporting Actor is Adam Driver for Black Klansman, Sam Elliott for A Star Is Born, Topher Grace for Black Klansman, Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Lin-Manuel Miranda for Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, supporting actress Zoe Kazan for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, specifically The Gal That Got Rattled. Mm. Jennifer Jason Leigh for Annihilation. Andrea Riseborough for Mandy, Emma Stone and Rachel Weiss. And original screenplay The Favourite, Isle of Dogs, Like Father, Mandy and The Other Side of the Wind. And adapted screenplay Annihilation, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Black Klansman, Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Okay. So, where are we? Uh, that was number seven. S- seven. Oh, it's time for number six. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that follows, doesn't it? Just about. Isle of Dogs. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, again, it's just another great filmmaker doing another typically good film. Mm. I found that this year has been quite weak. I did actually struggle at one point to scrape together ten films that I really liked. Wow. Um, so it's it's mainly... Here is a filmmaker whose work is good and whose work I like, and they've made another film and it was good and I liked it. And Isle of Dogs is definitely one of those. It's got a very... I mean, I I saw a trailer... I've seen the trailer for it. Um, Very, very good, distinctive visual style. Um, I remember seeing... I either saw the poster for it originally and assumed it was a terrible Cockney gangster film... Uh, I, <laughs> How would you assume that from the poster of some animated dogs? I think I saw the name. I think I just saw oh. Isle of Dogs, and it's just like, oh god, are we still making terrible British films about Cockney gangsters? Um, and yeah, as I say, another one that almost certainly I probably should have gone to see um, and didn't. Well, Anthony saw it, and he's got some opinions. It was his film of the year. Okay. Wonderful. More invention here than in the entirety of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, again, it's had so much style and warmth and a, a complete world. Yeah. Um, the idea of uh, all the dogs in Tokyo having been dumped on a garbage island and a, a little boy who uh, was sort of almost raised by a, his mm. pet going there to look for him and all the dogs speaking English and the humans speaking Japanese... It, it had it had style to spare. It had tremendous charm, and the the notion that the villain is actually taking orders from his cat. Oh well. Okay. Um, and that there was so much going on. The story felt so complex without mm. ever being overcomplicated. And it's you know it felt like it was only about ninety minutes with uh, with so much going on that. Um, yeah, it was, it was just really good. Like I said, it's it's hard to get really enthusiastic about a lot of these yeah, because yeah. they're good. But think about last year. I thought, well, last year all the movies were great. Yeah. And this is yeah, that was good. 
And that's it. And the, the, you know, when you, yes, you obviously if you've got a, a skilled filmmaker who you like that continues to do skilled films that you like, what else can you do except pat them on the head and say, carry on, carry on, do more of these. Yeah, yeah. And I really like Wes Anderson, but yeah, this is my sixth favorite film of the year. This is a weaker Wes mm. Anderson film by comparison, and it says a lot for how weak this year's output has been generally. It's been a really mediocre year. Yeah. No, I kind of got that impression. As I was saying, you know, watch a lot of Red Letter Media stuff. It was interesting that even they kind of, they got to a point where they abandoned reviewing some films because I think they were just kind of looking at the camera and going, this film is exactly what you would expect it to be. Yeah. Uh, I think, and yeah. So let's do another bottom five. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailer. And... I think I just remember a sense with the trailer of it starts out and obviously okay fine they're going back to the island and then there's a volcano and then they're in a country house and there's a dinosaur auction going on and then the, yeah. and I just remember looking at it going how many films are on screen at one time because there seem to be about five films in there struggling for for space it feels like it was written by a nine year old yeah they're going, they have to go back to the island because the volcano there is erupting. Yeah. Now, they built a theme park on an island with an active volcano, where if the volcano erupts, everyone there dies. Yes. This is a theme park island. But hopefully everyone has fun as they die. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to get a load, load of lousy trip advice. They go with, a, with a, a joyful scream into the pool of lava, yeah. but it's actual lava and they die forever. I did enjoy somebody else's suggestion on the internet that, that the sequel to Jurassic World, World should have been um, the lawsuit from the dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> it just just been a 90, 90 minutes of court case, basically. Um, and then they... As you say, there's there's a dinosaur auction because the the company that was, took over from Richard Attenborough after he died is now run by James Cromwell, but it's actually run by Rafe Spall, right. and they're going to auction off the designer dinosaur DNA bits because they're evil because or they're something. evil and that's what they happen. Yeah, because you know there's been a running thing in various Jurassic Park sequels where they've been doing it's oh we're going to like have human dinosaur hybrids or have dinosaurs with like um, shoulder-mounted machine yeah. guns, and these have always been shot. No, no, this is stupid. This is stupid. We're not doing that. And they might not do something just bland and boring anyway. But here they said, no, we're actually going to do it this time, and it's terrible. Mm. And uh, there's a you know there's a there's a dinosaur running. There's dinosaurs running around in the in the mansion, and people get eaten. And and at the end, they release the dinosaurs out into the wild, and there's dinosaurs running around all over America. And um, Jeff. Goldblum has a tiny, tiny, oh, tiny cameo. Right. His entire role is in the trailer. He's, yeah. in it, he's in it so little. And he's, oh, welcome to Jurassic World. <laughs> and it ends with like dinosaurs on a, not, like on a, oh, a rocky it? outcrop looking over Los Angeles because now there are dinosaurs everywhere. Right, Jurassic World, that's clever. It learns none of the lessons from the first Jurassic World. Um, Chris Pratt's character is still a horrible oh, Yeah. Um... Bryce Dallas Howard's character is still appallingly written by someone who really despises women. Uh, they make a whole big show about her wearing boots this time yeah. off and running around in her high heels, which just feels like 
smug. Yeah. You know, if it didn't have exactly the same writers as the previous movie, it would feel like one of like the DC course corrections. Yeah, yeah. Where they're constantly trying to change the movie to match what the audience yeah. wants. Um, but none of it makes any real sense. And the structure is a complete mess. There's a bit where they're, they're sailing away from the island with all the dinosaurs their boat can carry. And they're leaving behind lots of dinosaurs to die in the volcano because, you know... Yeah. And then one of the plesiosaurs is standing on the dock and it's going... And you're supposed to feel absolutely heartbroken that this magnificent, beautiful creature made entirely of CGI Mm. is dying in a CGI volcano in a CGI film. Yeah. Because the police because it's one of the police you saw is the first dinosaur you saw in the first Jurassic Park. Oh yes, yeah. When they're walking yeah. the, the the pond. And it's it's really shamelessly heartstring tugging shallow. Yeah. And I just thought this is the summit of your ability to elicit emotion of the audience. Of having a dinosaur go, sad dinosaur. Yeah. yeah, I mean this is a fucking joke. And then presumably Chris Pat says something endearingly sexist, or Bryce Dallas Howard trips over in her boots or something. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean Chris. Pratt, I mean, there's a lot I could say about Chris Pratt and um, that uh, appalling homophobic church that he goes to now. Ooh, that sounds like a hole with no bottom. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's not talk about that. Yeah. Listener, I recommend reading up about Chris Pratt because he's, he's, a, he's a real bag of shit. But he seems so nice. That's how they get you, Chris. <laughs> You're the number one Chris. He's the number last Chris. And literally Chris I. You are. <laughs> People say that Chris Pine is the best movie star, Chris. It's not. It's Chris Evans. Chris Evans actually oh, is... Oh, yes, sorry, the other... I got confused about which, which Chris Evans you meant. Chris Evans, Chris Evans, Captain America, because he seems to be actually Captain America in real life as well. No room for Christopher Plummer. Then. Canadian. Ah, oh, yeah. Also not a superhero. No, just checking. Yeah. Um, Anthony was not impressed by <laughs> Jurassic Park Fallen Interest, as he calls it. Uh, he doesn't put these in alphabetical order. It's a pain in the ear. The Alien Covenant of the franchise, a film that can't hide its disdain for the multiplex herd. Wow. He loves, I, that, he loves that metaphor, doesn't he? Yeah. I, you know, I don't even remember. Which one was Alien Covenant It's again? the last one. The one that was unbelievably terrible. Where, oh, is it the one where it's alien again, but on an alien planet? It's the, it's, I mean, it's, it is like that, in that it does everything wrong that the first film did wrong because they didn't bother listening to any of the critics. So remember how in Prometheus they walk out onto the planet and they say, well, there's no, you know, there's breathable atmosphere. Everyone takes their helmets mm. off. It's one that could be like microbes. There mm. could be trace things. God knows what. In Alien Covenant, never even wear the helmets in the first place. Why would you? And, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is the same. It does everything that the first film did wrong, but worse. Mm. It's a pile of garbage. And I'm, I'm done with Jurassic World. They're, they're doing a third film because they just keep making insane yeah. amounts of money. They can't be stopped. Because kids love dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. But that was the thing that I always remember about Jurassic Park 3. Um, was watching it on video and just sitting there and realising that Steven Spielberg had made dinosaurs boring. And just thinking, how the hell did he manage that? We will be talking about Steven Spielberg. I know. 
Um, so what's next? Number five on the good list. A documentary. See, I don't just watch no, the no, blockbusters. They Shall Not Grow Old. Oh, this is Peter Jackson, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Peter Jackson's documentary based on World War One footage mm. and testimony. Um, now, I saw this on TV on my own because it had this weird release where it was yeah. shown in the Imperial War Museum and then on TV... And then released on video, and then shown in cinemas again, oh, okay. and it sort of was sort of yeah, all yeah. over the place, bit by bit. I think most people caught it on TV in the end. Didn't yeah, they? it uh, I think it aired on the centenary of the yeah. of Armistice Day, and it's a very simple idea. It's footage from First World War, combined with testimony from people who were there, but the footage has been remastered to make it look more. Normal, yeah. The the uh, the speed's been corrected yeah. so that it looks normal speed, and it's also been blown up to widescreen, and it's been carefully colorized, yeah. and the sound effects added in, and you've had they've had forensic lip readers come in and figure out what the people are actually saying, and that sound's been very carefully dubbed in. The whole idea being to make it look like this footage is as new as possible, yeah. so that it's not history, it's present day, and it makes the whole story totally new it's not trying to be a chronological history of the war it goes from the war breaking out to basic training traveling to the front arriving at the front life at the front the big push and it just goes through this simple progression of the stages of war and we get to see it firsthand as though it was filmed yesterday and the a brilliant choice i thought was the testimony of the survivors is, I assume, not read by the survivors themselves. It's mm. read by people who are young. Yeah. So it's as though they're, they've only been back for a couple of years and these are fresh memories. Yeah, I mean, and that's what makes all the difference because it's... <sighs> the distance of history is reduced to zero. Exactly. Well, it's, it's a similar effect to when, a few years ago, when they sort of... They found was it? They either, I, I genuinely now can't remember if they found first a second World War footage in colour or whether they recolourised some of it. But it has exactly the same effect. That slightly uncanny thing of it stops it being history. Yeah, it 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 brings it up to date, yeah. and it's it's surprising how much impact something that that symbol has because I think everyone falls into that trap of thinking black and white the the past. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would think of it as a descendant of um, Peter Watkins' work uh, when he made Culloden and the War Game, yeah. which were um, dramatised on-the-spot documentaries about a historical event that happened hundreds of years ago and something that hasn't happened yet mm. at all, um, the Battle of Culloden in 1745 and a nuclear attack on Britain. And Watkins filmed them as though they were totally real, on the spot, you know, cinema verite, yeah. not real actors. And they, they Shall Not Grow Old follows in the same tradition that it is turning history into something that is absolutely now, absolutely happening as you are watching. And it's making you understand the impact that these stories had on people. Mm. By, make, by forcing you 
to see them in terms of the present day context. That they're not just people, you know, these flickering images on an old screen. This is, this is effectively new footage. Yeah, yeah. And these people, are, these young people, are telling you about what it's like to live in a trench, what it's like to see someone drowning in mud or be caught on barbed wire and torn to pieces by machine gun fire. It, it was a very affecting mm. film. I was very deeply moved by it. Um, and I was very impressed by Jackson's delicacy. Yeah. Yeah, it would be very easy to to apply too much technology to it in a way, wouldn't it? That's my concern, that, that he's very much one of the technocrat filmmakers at the moment. But this shows that he's aware of this and he he's using his technological skill and clout to do something which is solely for the advancement of human understanding mm. and human feeling, which is the best use for technology. And I think it's a, a really remarkable piece of work. And I think it's a shame that it's it seems to have been passed over for so many awards. I suppose part of the problem, because most people encountered it on TV, it, there's a perception it's a TV documentary rather than a film. I, I can only assume that's, that's partly it. Maybe. I was really surprised that it wasn't Oscar-nominated. There's, there's distinctly weird rules about what has to be done for films to qualify. Don't they have to, it has to be shown for Los, in Los Angeles for two weeks or something? There are, there are different rules, I think, for documentaries. Because oh, okay. there is an understanding that they struggle to get theatrical release. Mm. It's like, like the short documentary category, I think, that has yeah, very specific true. special rules. But um, I thought it was a, a very, very powerful piece of work. I loved it. Ah, here we go. Number four. Mandy. I, you know, I don't even think I've heard of this one. Really? I keep, well, you said Mandy, you know, because I immediately defaulted to Barry Manilow, and I'm pretty sure that's not correct. It isn't. No. Um, it's the new film by Panos Cosmatos. Uh, I believe it's his first film to be released in the UK. His previous feature film was Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I mentioned a little while ago okay. on the podcast. And like Beyond the Black Rainbow, this is a throwback to films of the past the horror of the 70s but this is this is no hereditary this isn't you know just a do-over this is both feet on the accelerator it's the story of a logger living with his girlfriend in a cabin in the woods in in cognito yeah um and they they've both clearly have trauma in their lives. But they have, they have this little, nice little existence. She works in the local petrol station and d- draws these fantasy drawings. He goes and chops down trees in the forest. But one day as she's walking to work, a camper van drives past with a cult leader inside. And she catches his eye. And that night, he summons a group of demon bikers to invade their house and tie them up and he tries to seduce the woman and she's having none of it she laughs in his face when he tries to play her his record because he made a record which sounds like the carpenters so he puts her in a bag and he puts the bag over a fire and she burns to death while Nicolas Cage who's been tied to a fence with barbed wire is forced to watch 
And then the movie just gets crazier and crazier and okay. weirder and weirder. A crazy Nicolas Cage movie? Who'd have thought it? No one could have played this other than Nicolas Cage. It needs him to be absolutely full-on insane. Wow. It, I, dis- I, I was talking to Anthony about the film, and I described it as a nightmare that won't let you wake up. Blimey. It's fiercely hallucinatory. Um, it had mi- mixes in synth music and prog rock. Uh, I think it starts with um, King Crimson, and it just gets weirder from there. Linus Roach plays the cult leader, Jeremiah Sand. Hmm. Um, there is horrific, insane violence, bizarre imagery. Um, the film ends with the camera panning up into an alien sky. Okay. It's, it, it is a fiercely original piece of work. It is an absolute vision of its director. And it's, it's been this weird cult hit. It barely got released in the UK. Yeah. Pretty much went straight to DVD. Um, but um, I was able to see it, and I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. It might be a bit hot, too much to take for some people because it is like... It sounds fairly unrelenting. It's like if David Lynch would think, hmm, it's like, it's, it's, it's like I, I took a lot of drugs and then jumped into my own brain <laughs> because it's, it's, it, it, it has that kind of surrealistic edge to it, but it goes so far beyond anything that he would ever do because he's in, in his own way he's quite straight-laced. Hmm. But even at his most weird, it's not as, you know, what is most frightening. Like the demon bikers, who were supposedly drug couriers who sampled a bad batch and then just seem to either go crazy or intersect with some other dimension and we never get a good look at them. And that's probably for the best, because mm. if we did, we'd go insane as well. So there's this whole Lovecraftian element to it. Wow. It's, it sounds um, absolutely bonkers. It, sounds... it is. It's great. Um, yeah, and Panos Cosmatos is the kind of guy who think, give this man a Marvel movie. Give this man <laughs> the Doctor Strange sequel. Because, and just say, yeah, have all the money you need. Just go go make this movie. Because it, it would turn out almost unwatchable. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's an amazing filmmaker. Beyond the Black Rainbow has still not been released in the UK. Um, that was his sort of homage to 70s science fiction and this is sort okay. of more 80s horror but um, Mandy is, is a really fantastic piece of work um, number two on the bottom list The Girl in the Spider's Web oh okay yeah this is the well obviously Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and all those ones isn't it this is number four is this the new trilogy Yes, it's the um, it's the fourth book overall, but it's the second book of the American series. Okay. Because there's the girl with the dragon tattoo, mm. the two follow up books, the girl who played with fire and the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. But after the American film of Dragon Tattoo was not a big hit, or rather wasn't as big a hit as they wanted because the budget was very high. Um, there was a lot of discussion about what to do next um, and eventually the decision was taken to do a lower budget version 
which means a new cast, which means starting from scratch again. Mm. So I thought, well, let's skip on to the first book by David Lagerkrans, who is doing the new books now, and that's The Girl in the Spider's Web. So now instead of uh, Rooney Mara and uh, Daniel Craig, you have uh, Claire Foy and some Swedish guy. Right. Anthony says, and this is something we've talked about a lot, actually. It's here somewhere. In the non-alphabetical unordered list. A franchise-killing dud, which Numi Rapace couldn't have saved. Foy miscast. What next? Kira Knightley is Susie Sue. Stupidity abounds. Terrible waste of the character in the Me Too era. It's absolutely awful. It completely fails to understand why the character of Lisbeth Salander works. Mm. That she is like a kind of spectre. And this film turns her into like a superhero. Yeah, this is one thing I remember from seeing the trailer for the film, was that that's almost how she seemed to be portrayed, yeah. Um, it it has so little understanding of the the context of the material. The reason why The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was so successful and so acclaimed was the fact that it was a detective story that had intelligence mm. and thoughtfulness and relevance. And this is just a, a, a boilerplate airport novel that completely wastes the potential of the character. Foy is, Claire Foy is completely miscast. She's, she's actually older than Rooney Mara in actual mm. age. Not just the fact that there's been nine years between the two movies. Yeah. She's, she's far too old. She's the wrong build because Salander's supposed to be small and skinny because people keep thinking that she's a child. Um, the, the cast is a complete mess. We have Stephen Merchant cropping up in a dramatic role. Okay. Um, looking really out of place. Mm. And he's acted... <laughs> To the surprise of everyone, Stephen Merchant's actually a really good dramatic actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, he told a story about when he was in the movie, he thought, well, he's in a fight scene. And he thought, well, I, I sh- I'd like to do something in this scene rather than just cower in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it's, it's just a, a mess and an embarrassment of the character. I mean, I, I've already done a video on it, so mm. my, my opinion there is, is fresher than it is now. But... It it just shows a total lack of comprehension of why any of it works, yeah. and the fact that it was a huge bomb and got terrible reviews. I think it's just an indication of how well the first film worked because you had a really good cast, you had a really good director who cared about the material and was working at the top of his game, and you can't swap out David Fincher for Fede Alvarez and expect to get the same result. No, that's right. It's a load of crap. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so number three. Yes. That sounds right. Black Klansman. Yeah. I, obviously, I. this is one of the films I did go to see. And partly because, again, of a complete initial misunderstanding on my part. I... Was de- went to going to work, got on the underground, saw a poster on the tube, and because I was kind of in a rush and didn't pay the poster a great deal of attention, and somehow misunderstood the film to be an edgy comedy, 
in which a black, uh, you know, an African-American ends up joining the clan. And I'd kind of, by the time I got to work, I'd got this whole terrible film in my head <laughs> that was a kind of... Um, oh, I'm struggling now to remember the... What's the film where they're sent to kill Kim Il-jun or something? The Interview. Yeah, you know, it's a film like The Interview where it's all edgy and, oh, look, how you know, here's this man. And, oh, no, they can't find out that actually he's black and... Uh, as I say, I've got this whole terrible film in my head, and then on the way home, I saw the poster again and actually had a chance to have a proper look at it, <laughs> and realised I was completely wrong. And at that point, you think, well, okay, let's go and give it a try. And yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I mean, subsequently, a lot of the stuff they've talked about, the fact that, that Spike Lee pulled a little bit of a Bohemian Rhapsody on it, and that a lot of the material that's in the film didn't actually happen in real life but i thought it was a, a very very good film i liked it a great deal i thought it I, it's clearly spike lee's best film yeah. in decades um but the the claims about the veracity of the story were interesting because i thought that the the way it ends with everyone at the bar and they're all pals now apart from the racist it says yeah you're a racist you're mm. fired and i thought Hmm, this is a bit movie-ish. Yeah. And then the main character goes home with his girlfriend and they look out of the window and there's a burning cross on their lawn. And we cut to footage from the last few years of Mm. clan rallies, of Charlottesville, of neo-Nazis, of Donald Trump. And it's a punch to the stomach. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. This was a movie. You've been watching a movie. This is reality. And they've changed nothing. This was a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Certainly I remember that final sequence being very hard to watch in the cinema. Um, Yeah, it's funny. And and the sequence where they arrest the the racist cop, it's kind of like the feel-good ending. Yeah. Um, (sighs) It's... I think think that wrong-footed a lot of people because it, it really does feel phony. Yes, yeah. But it's supposed to, because it's a movie. It's it's playing those kinds of games with you again, like when Quentin Tarantino just machine-gunned Hitler in, in Glorious Bosses. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's a movie. Yes, yeah, you, you can, can do, do that. that. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of very, very funny sequences. The, the sequence where he's actually put on protection duty for David Duke yes. is actually genuinely funny. But at the same time, what it what it does very, very well is it mixes the the humour of that situation with... In fact, it's the other guy in the team, isn't it, that's having to pretend to be a member of the clan and is saying, literally saying stuff like, don't touch me, and things like that. And you yeah. just think... And... I don't know. That was weirdly shocking, in a way. I, I, I assume it's a, a perfectly reasonable thing for a racist to say, but the idea that somebody would actually say something like that, I just found... I know. It just brings... well, that's that. It says a lot for your in, innate goodness. I suppose so. It just made me feel terribly sad. <laughs> it's, it's about the only way I can describe it. And then yeah, and then you get that bit at the end, and you just think, no, this is just awful. And the fact that yes, particularly it includes footage from the Charlottesville. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I don't think you, you see it on camera, but certainly the car ploughing through the ground, yeah. and. Um, I don't, I don't think you see the woman actually being run over and killed, but you don't need to no. to understand the context. 
it's it it is the it is the film that is twenty nineteen. Mm. Twenty eighteen. It won't well, it's, it's yeah. History is coming to an end as we know. Um this is a story that had to be told and I think it had to be told this way. That it's a it's a nice and palatable a lot of it. It's there's lots of hey, we're gonna get one over on the racists. Yeah. And they do, in a way that is vaguely historically correct. Um and then it hits you and says, no. Yeah, we, that's fine. Yeah, the, good, the, the good guys won. The good guys won. <laughs> well, yeah, that time they did. But also there's a Nazi in the White House and yeah. children are being pulled from their parents and thrown in cages. And Muslims are being shot dead in mosques in New Zealand. And nothing has changed. And if anything, it's got even worse. So it... it and, but it's, it's the delivery mechanism. Hmm. But it's also a really funny film. And my choice of Best Supporting Actor of the Year is Topher Grace's David Duke. Because it's the banality of the man. He's such a just this boring, nothing, non-entity. And yet he is a disgusting Nazi. He's not even an inspiring... No, he's not even... He's he's like a middle manager. That's the thing, isn't it? Is the fact that these clan meetings, they, they obviously want them to be... I suppose, sort of myth. You know, they want them to be kind of um, Nietzschean and mythological and stuff. And it is just a bunch of boring men sitting in horrible function rooms in hotels, putting sheets on their heads. And that's, as you say, it's 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 the lack of ambition. I'm not quite sure what they're the not, word. I mean, they're not even. They think of themselves as being great warriors. Yeah. Yeah. But they're just they're just like middle managers, they're estate agents, they're yeah. car salesmen. They're they're nobody special. Yeah. But they have to think that they are by indulging in this insane racist sort of fantasy, fantasy yeah. world. Because that's the only thing that can give them any mm. sense of purpose or identity. And Topher Grace communicates this yes. brilliantly. It's I mean he's he's he said in an interview that he, he can't go on Google anymore because all his research has completely destroyed his search history. <laughs> and he's terrified that he's on watch lists all over the world now. But he, he just communicates this so perfectly. He's so, just completely convincing as an absolutely normal sack of shit. Yeah. But it's, it's great performances all around. Yeah. And it's a great script. And it's brilliantly directed. Uh, I I thought it was fantastic. I recommended it to my mother. Okay. I doubt she'll watch it. Okay. <laughs> because if, if nothing else, quite spicy language all the way through. Yes. Yeah. Uh, number two film of the year, and this was one that I really loved, and I had I had my all my fingers crossed that yeah. this was going to turn out to be good, and you've seen it as well. Halloween. Yes. I went on opening night. I was so nervous that I thought, oh, please don't mess this up, please don't mess this up, please don't mess this up. And it was fantastic. It was the perfect ending for the story. Mm. Obviously, they're making another one. But. I think we'll keep our fingers crossed that the next one is the sequel to Halloween 3 that we're all watching. <laughs> Cochrane's Revenge. Or, or, they'll, or they'll think of some clever way of extending yeah. it because I think they have the same. I don't think they do have the same writing team. We'll see. I mean, they're bound to fuck it up. Mm. Was it a full house when you went to see it? Yep. 
Friday night, I actually saw it again. I went to see it with my sister and my cousin, and they were both quite lukewarm. But it was it was only ten days later, mm. and I thought, yeah, I still love it. I still think this is absolutely fantastic. It takes all the strengths of the original and expands those to look at something that I think is it's rarely looked at in these kinds of stories, and that's what happened to the characters mm. afterwards. How do you learn to live with going through this horrifying trauma of being stalked by this silent, masked murderer who's murdered all your friends and you're the only survivor? How, how mm. can you possibly pick up your life after that? And that's why Jamie Lee Curtis is down for Best Actress for the Year. Yeah. Because... It's about someone whose entire life has been destroyed by this trauma and whose entire life is focused on it. There was a deleted scene where uh, she tries to kill herself. Oh, okay. Because the, the prospect that um, Michael Myers is being transferred from prison into some kind of secure facility forever, that, she's, that he's going to be out of her reach to, to get her yeah. revenge on him. She, she can't cope with... Yeah, it's coming to an end, and it's Michael escaping from custody and returning to Haddonfield to carry on killing is the thing that she needs in her life. She yes, needs yes. this release emotionally of being able to kill Michael Myers, and there's very much a reversal in their positions. There are lovely nods and references to the original film stylistically, mm. where. Laurie and Michael's positions are reversed because psychologically their positions are reversed through the course of the film. Yeah. Um, we have fantastic performances, supporting ones as well. Judy Greer. Again, it's like she's in 1517 to Paris, one of the worst yeah. films of the year. She's in Ant-Man and the Wasp and she's in this, one of the best films of the year. So she's in all levels. Yeah, yeah. Um, as Laurie's daughter is absolutely terrific and there's a, there's the twist at the end which you know the bit that I mean where the character's portrayed one way and then snap something switches around. Yeah. It's so perfect because it's totally convincing, totally believable. Judy Greer is such an amazing actress. And why doesn't she get lead roles? She's always playing someone's wife, someone's daughter, even when the character's well written as as she is in Halloween. The character's defined by the fact that she's Laurie Strode's daughter. Mm. She needs to have lead roles. She's fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I, I just thought that this was terrific. It's the best Halloween sequel. It's the best of the, of the, the dozen or so sequels. Most of them are fairly ropey. Which is, yeah, well... So it's you know, not surprising. But the fact that a Halloween movie is one of the best films of the year because it's so brilliantly written, it's so thoughtful, it really understands why this works, both in terms of being a well-crafted horror movie and having some really terrific horror sequences, of having mm. great dialogue, of having well-written characters. It is the perfect horror film, I think, for, for, for modern yeah, yeah. day. And to top it all off, they brought back John Carpenter to do the music. And I, I understand why it wasn't Oscar-nominated for the music, because there's so much reuse of his themes for the original film, and that doesn't fly, yeah. and that's perfectly reasonable. 
but it is the best film score of the year because it's so much of it is cleverly reinterpreting mm. the themes of the original film, adding a, in new flavors, adding in new styles, and the the big sort of epic synth rock version of the Halloween theme over the closing credits is like that's the ending of the story. It's like the the perfect way to tie it off, the perfect way for Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter to end the story. Yeah. So you've got nothing else to say? Oh, sorry, I thought you were going to move on. No, I, I, I genuinely, yes, I, I did like it. I, I mean, it has a couple of sequences that stick very, very clearly in the memory. The The first sequence where he just he just moves from house to house, is that a, is it almost done as a single camera shot? It, is, done a, it, it is a single and take. That's, I'm not usually... Stuff like that can very easily trip over into into the cinematographer going oh look how clever I am but in this case it kind of felt appropriate that it's like oh he's gone here he's gone into the garage he's picked up a hammer oh Diego there goes that poor lady oh he's gone into the next He's now he's picked up a knife and now he's gone into the next house and there's something very very relentless about that and a very good sequence with a motion sense uh, motion activated light yes which is one of those things that you see it and you think, why has nobody done that? Because that's such an obvious idea. Yeah, it is. Um, but, of course, that's the delight about obvious ideas, is you don't recognise them until somebody's actually put them on screen. But I thought that was a terrific... That, that's actually a proper scary sequence. The bit that always sticks in my mind from the very first film is one of the characters is walking through the house and all that happens is Michael Myers kind of steps forwards into the light very, oh, yeah. very slowly and his face fades into view and then he steps back and his face fades back out of view. And I thought, in terms of sort of, for sheer sort of unnerving creepiness, the sequence with the motion-activated light, I thought was was very, very close to that. Um, yeah, it's, it's very, very, very good. Hmm. And... I loved it the first time I saw it. I loved it when I saw it again. Um, aside from the fact that it has a really horrible DVD cover, I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing it again very soon. Ironically, one of my worst go- cinema-going experiences ever. Um, oh, it, really? Yeah, yeah, because I got to the cinema and I deliberately picked a an antisocial time to go and see it. So it was like the 11.20 showing on a Sunday morning or something. And as I'm walking down the corridor to go into the correct screen there's a teenage bloke and two girls in front of me and they're making loads of noise Uh, and and i'm sort of walking behind them thinking don't go into screen nine don't go into screen nine don't go into screen nine they go into screen nine uh, they sat right at the back they talked all the way through the adverts all the way through the trailers and you think well that's fine you're allowed to do that just shut up when the film starts they didn't shut up when the film starts they kept going they kept going it got to the point and bearing in mind obviously this is an English cinema audience I'm talking about somebody said very loudly the film has started and that gives you for somebody to transgress social norms that badly gives you an idea of how annoying they were being and then it went on went on eventually I think it died down for a bit then it picked up again I got up to go out and find a member of staff to complain, which is absolutely something I've never done before. I'm not going to go and confront them myself. That, that ain't my job. Um, that's why the cinema's 
pay people minimum wage. Or um, less than minimum wage if yeah, you if you're house. really lucky. Yeah. Um, anyway, and as I as I headed out of the doors, doors opened and a woman came out behind me and I jokingly turned around and said, oh, have you come to complain about the teenagers as well? And she just went, yes. We both went, found a member of staff who came in and I think after about after about half an hour they got bored and left because it's not a film for them. I honestly don't know if they had expected, you know, a different film. Um you know, you kind of think, oh, it's a film about it's a film about a mass murder, blah blah blah. It's a horror, and you maybe you expect it to be a bit more of a roller coaster ride. Um, they were expecting sort of something like the Rob Zombie version of Halloween, possibly, it's all, yeah. it's all, you know, southern gothic blood and guts and and idiotic rock music. Almost certainly, yeah. So, the, despite the fact that like, the first thirty minutes of this film, I was absolutely churning up with this thing of going. You're a youth. Yeah, keep yeah. these kids get off my lawn. Um, although all, all I can say is I never behaved. Even when I found films boring, I never behaved that badly in the cinema. Well, when I found films boring, I just leave. Well, yes, that's the sensible thing to do, isn't it? Well, speaking of which, going into the worst film of the year, mm. I did walk out of the cinema this year. Oh, really? I went to see Vice, and I found it absolutely intolerable incredibly patronising um, I, I think I read, a, I read a long thing on Twitter about mm. it that it was just it, so smug and so strangely written I, I really had no idea who this film was supposed to be for because it was so obviously preaching to the converted yeah. that I, I didn't understand who the audience would be apart from Hollywood liberal elites <laughs> So I left, yeah. and um, Adam Mackay really needs to have a word with himself. Worst film of the year is Ready Player One. Yeah, I can't say I'm surprised. Um, Anthony says, approaching Peg Overload. Yeah. I, what, I didn't know he had a problem with Simon Pegg. Um, <laughs> flashes of primo Spielberg, but the source material isn't even up to Jaws level. Is Jaws the novel that bad? It's fine. Oh. I don't remember remember a lot about it to be honest this mortal engines and Alita Battle Angel are expensive fantasies featuring young girls whose faces or bodies have been mutilated and all have underperformed um I had to pay to see Ready Player One wow for some reason oh, I think I I left my card at home or something like that so I had to pay cash and it is the worst thing Spielberg has ever done. Yeah, absolutely. It's this pathetic adolescent fantasy that all the things you loved when you were little are now the most amazing, most beloved things in the world, that the universe revolves around you. Mm. But the problem as well is it's it's a film that's sitting there digging you in the ribs going, hey, remember this? And the answer is no, because I grew up in the 80s in England. This is not my nostalgia. Um, and I kind of I did slight I, I did actually resent that the fact that there's all this stuff it's, it's, it's trying to make you feel nostalgic for stuff that well I was never that nostalgic for it anyway it was stuff that was happening on the other side of the Atlantic mm. um, no it's and it's a film as well that's it's got the worst kind of artless bad corporations are bad 
but oh look here's another corporation and that's good so that's a big corporation but this corporation isn't bad so it's good and you just and then the 20th century fox logo comes up at the end <laughs> and he's like what whatever um that that the villain is defeated because he's written his wi-fi password down yeah. on a piece of paper and then leaves it on his desk when the hero comes to see him in his office i can't i thought that was some sort of joke i mm. didn't realize that's actually a real plot point in a steven spielberg movie yeah something that moronic yeah, it's really hard for me to. I mean, obviously, I've tried to block out as much of it as I could. Well, this is the thing. I remember it's, it's so terrible on every level. I remember sitting through it, and 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 I managed to avoid getting. I I I didn't pay to see it, so Steven Spielberg didn't get any money out of me for it. But I struggle now to remember what I found so objectionable about it. It just sits in my head as a of a film um, it repurposing people's memories and nostalgia mm. I really disliked um, turning the Iron Giant into a weapon of war when the whole point of the original movie yeah. is that he doesn't want to be a weapon that was a slap in the face and a kick in the teeth for people who I mean I'm not yeah. a big fan of it but I know people really took against that um, there's some nods towards um, uh, transhumanism with a character who's a female in the real world but um, masculine mm. in the digital world but it was so obvious in how it was portrayed that it's very obviously a woman speaking with her voice pitch shifted yes, yeah. and I thought uh, when it's, oh it turns out it's a woman yeah I know I guessed a fucking hour ago yeah yeah, that was meant to be a big surprise, wasn't it? And uh, it turns out that um, the beautiful girl that he's been courting, says, she's always very shy about her appearance in, in the real world. It turns out she looks exactly the same, but just has a bit of a scar on her face. That's Yeah, I mean, that's the classic um, problem that Hollywood's got with ugly people, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, what, it's like the... What was the film where Uma Thurman plays an ugly vet or something? and. The truth about cats and dogs. No, isn't it that Janine Garofalo is the ugly one? I can't when she's honest... actually an attractive woman. I honestly can't remember. Uh, but she, it's it's sort of this weird surrounded version of thing, and she gets Uma Thurman to stand in for her. Oh, uh, I, I didn't like, I didn't get that far into paying much attention to it. I just remember that that it was the classic thing of oh look here's the ugly one, mm. and you just go oh yeah whatever, um, because that's Hollywood's definition of ugly. Um, and that was kind of how I felt like this was yes you go oh my secret shame I look and she's got meh. she's got a bit it's of a, genuinely, a scar on her face it's it ma- it manages to be surprisingly offensive that yeah. thing that oh it's the yeah look at this cat look at this hideous troll as it leers out from the screen at you you, just, you know um, and and a very very a very boring. Film for, for a film that's so visually busy, just dull. I yeah. think obviously there's the the clip that that turned up in the trailer as well, where there's a car race and there's thousands of cars and they're all kind of going off bridges or something. Yeah, and it it's the the classic problem with CGI, where as other people said, you can do anything, so you just sit there and go yeah, whatever. Well, you can do anything, so they've decided to do everything. Yes, yeah. Because the screen is just filled with all this visual noise. Yeah. And none of it has any 
relevance mm. or weight or dramatic power. The lead actor is a complete, you know, dead fucking nothing, mm. and just a, just just a blank space. Oh, and it's got the ho- most horrible pat kind of the, the the kind of ending that is so sort of. Pat and cliched that you could almost believe it's a spoof of Pat cliched Hollywood endings because the bad man is there and he's being bad and then the police turn up and arrest him on the spot because yeah because even though his corporation apparently controls the world they don't, he don't actually and he just, they just arrest him and yeah, take him away yeah because that's what the police would the, the police would definitely arrest the head of Amazon if he ever tried to pull a stunt like this and and you just think yeah this is just. It's 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 just dreadful. It's, it's a very, so, it's a very adolescent view of the world. It's a two-hour wank. Mm. It's just a teenage boy who's never outgrown, you know, his thirteen-year-old self, deciding that everything he loved at that age is amazing. Yeah. That the universe revolves around him. I mean, Ernest Cline's book is apparently. Much, much worse. Well, this is where, and uh, apologies because I actually can't remember if I've, I've said this on the podcast before. I've I read Ready Player One, and I quite enjoyed it. But go it, fuck yourself. It turned out I'd read it wrong because I read this book in which there's um, everyone's going on about the eighties and nostalgia, and oh look, I've got a car, and it's the car from Ghost. No, it's the car from Back to the Future, but I've put the Ghostbusters logo on it, and now I'm going to a nightclub, and I don't know, we're going to dance to music from the eighties, and it's obviously it's set after I forget if it's set after some economic collapse or after global warming's kicked in. It's set after some vague kind of uh, some disaster that set mankind back. And I read it as a satire. It's like, this is the end of culture. There is nothing new being produced anymore. Civilization is very slowly winding down. Pop culture is wound down. And basically, everybody is just obsessed with the stuff that was being obsessed over in the past. So I read the book as a satire. Right. Of, 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 a, of a world of junk culture where there's nothing yeah. new and they're just recycling the past. Yeah. Turns out it's not a satire. No, no <laughs> it means every word of it. Yeah. Ernest Klein has had a, a DeLorean customised with all the Ghostbusters stuff and he thinks that's dead cool. Yeah. But He's a fucking prick. So that was it. So I, I, I read the book and I, th- I, I genuinely read it and thought, this is oh, really... Right. I really what I yeah, earlier. I read it and thought, this is really clever. <laughs> no, <laughs> it turns out you're cleverer than the book you're reading. Yeah, that was kind of embarrassing. No, that's that's great. As, yeah, yeah, I'm a lot cleverer than this book. <laughs> hey, author, go fuck yourself. I say that a lot today. Mm. That was because you're very feisty. No, no more curried eggs for you. So, best film of the year. Mm-hmm. Anthony says, so prescient it short circuits the mind. It is, of course, the other side of the wind. Ah, yes. A mere 50 years in the making. <laughs> yeah. Orson Welles' last film, finally finished, thanks to the work of Peter Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall. And it's a masterpiece. He invents the found footage movie and turns the carnival mirror of his lens and of Hollywood on himself. It's the story of a filmmaker lauded by critics and lauded by cineasts all over the world 
trying to remain relevant in his as he moves into his seventies mm. by making a new hip, modern, kind of Michelangelo Antonioni style, um, a new Hollywood type movie, but is unable to move forward in himself. So he's surrounded by all these hangers-on, his past, uh, his his protege who's outstripped him. Um, he has these horrible dark secrets of his own, the reasons why he seduces all his leading men's wives. And it's told through footage shot by characters within the scene, this mixture of colour and black and white, film stock, bits of the footage, bits of the, the film that the director himself has made, bits of footage from the party, all jumbled together mm. in this incredible collage. It's a ruthlessly self-lacerating self-portrait by Wells of himself. Of He is trying to make a film that's very yeah. fresh and different and new Hollywood. And he is himself ageing, he's got this baggage of his past and mm. all these all these worshippers who follow him around and he doesn't know if he's up to it I thought it was absolutely fascinating it's a, an extraordinary cinematic work it is psychologically fascinating and I think that it, it's it's an amazing achievement and I'm so pleased that I was finally able to see it. I, you know, it was filmed in the 70s. It's mm. only now that anyone put up the money to actually finish the damn thing because it had so many rights problems. Yeah. It's, it was, and, and again, well done to Netflix, although it's not really clear what they're playing at. It's, it's, you know, they're making this, they're making the Cloverfield space thing. They didn't make that, they picked that up. That's true, in a, in a fire cell. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And then, you know, and... Ah, there was some... Roma? Yeah, and that's it. And and it just... I suppose... Then again, what are they doing? They're not doing anything that any big Hollywood studio is doing. They're going, well, this might be good. Let's do this. Let's... And, you know, and some stuff works and some stuff turns to ashes. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, and that's I, okay. I don't... I can't really... With some of the other ones, you you know you think oh I have to stand up and I have to leave the house, then I have to go to the cinema, then I have to buy a ticket. It's just all too much work. Yeah. Um, in this case, obviously Netflix very thoughtfully will beam it to your television. Mm. So it's I can't really justify why I haven't seen this one, and I should do because obviously I have seen Citizen Kane. Um, it's Brilliant. Um, I think I saw it in about um, 1990. It just turned up on BBC One one evening. And at that point, all I knew about Citizen Kane was an endless sequence of jokes that used to pop up in Peanuts comics, where they were constantly making references. So there's one particular one where uh, Charlie Brown's sister is going to go out to the cinema. But again, actually, then she can't be bothered. So Charlie Brown comes in and goes, I thought you said you were going to the cinema. And, and she says, no, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm watching Citizen Kane for the 14th time. And then the, and then she goes, I bet Rosebud turns out to be a sledge. So I even went into the film knowing what Rosebud was because <laughs> Charles Schultz had blown the the uh, the end for me. And it was 
and it was and it's brilliant and you know there's nothing i can say about why it's brilliant that hasn't been said before um so i have no excuse you know i've seen citizen kane i've seen his outtakes of the wine adverts <laughs> <laughs> you know i've seen the whole i've seen the whole body the of whole his, gamos, yeah. yeah i've even seen him on the muppets i think um no it was he was in the muppet movie He's in the wasn't muppet it? Movie, yeah yeah, yeah. The Other Side of the Wind would have been as revolutionary to 70s film yeah. as Citizen Kane was in the 40s. It was so ahead of its time in uh, the level of complexity it's bringing. The, uh, is it, I mean, in the same way that, that Nigel Neal went through that period where he just said, right, this is what television's going to be like in 30 years' time, and it turned out it was right. Is it that kind of Nigel Neal style thing, or no. is it not quite so mean-spirited? It's it's not necessarily mean-spirited mm. about the art of cinema. Um, Wells acknowledges that everything's changing. And he himself had already done some quite weird experimental stuff, so that didn't really seem mm. to sit badly with him. It was more that he felt he was being left behind. He was struggling to get films financed yeah. constantly. While his protégé, Peter Bogdanovich, had had a huge hit with The Last Picture Show and then Paper Moon. And in the film, Bogdanovich plays the director's protégé. The director in the film is played by John Huston, who himself was also a director yeah, who had yeah. been very successful. He was the son of a great movie star, and he too was becoming more and more old-fashioned, although he had to take a break from filming to go off and make The Man Who Would Be King. Hmm. So it has these these multiple layers to it that it's kind of a, a, a reflection of itself Wells was Wells loved magic mm. he loved trickery he loved illusions and the film does feel like you're walking into a hall of mirrors where it's reflecting Wells himself it's reflecting the film industry by exploiting the tropes and stylistic quirks that were starting to become commonplace and have now been calcified into cliché the scenes we see of the film within the film, which is called The Other Side of the Wind, look like uh, incoherent art house hmm. gibberish, which is the point, because it's supposed to be a parody of things like Blow Up and Zabriskie Point and Head and all these very 60s, very modern stylistic trickery yeah. things. But then he's going on saying, well, yeah, I could, yeah, I'm making fun of this, but also I can do this stuff myself. Yeah. And then he just goes off and invents found footage movies, which is a completely new style of filmmaking, which no, I don't think anyone had done before. No. And it's now incredibly commonplace. But Wells just did it first and he just thought of it. Well, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Because he was a genius. So that's the best film of the year. Uh, listener, it's available on Netflix now. There's an accompanying documentary, which I highly recommend, called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Hmm. Um, coming up this year, we've got Frozen 2. We've got Terminator 6. <sighs> we've got... Uh, what else? Well, presumably there's another Star Wars film at some point. Star Wars or 9. Or another far film with dinosaurs in. or uh, Not that I can remember. Oh, we've got Shazam, we've which got, which is either going to be completely nuts or terrible. There's just it doesn't strike me there's going to be any middle ground on that one. Um, I'm waiting for the Banana Man movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see. Um, so there's going to be all sorts of exciting films that will ultimately turn out to be very underwhelming. I'm not aware of any kind of interesting 
weird art mm. house films on the horizon, but you know they can always jump out and surprise you. Uh, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman might be fascinating, or um, the film with Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. Hmm. Um, it's uh, a whole uh, exciting wonderland ahead, and hopefully it won't be as mediocre as 2018 was. Thanks to Chris for making time for this podcast, and to Anthony for his notes. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. Until next time, who knows? Maybe you can stare too hard at something. Train out the virtue, suck out the living juice. You shoot the great places and the pretty people, all those girls and boys. You shoot them dead. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Podnose.com